they do not have the biological components that allow them to breastfeed in a way that facilitates healthy development for an infant. And if they think they do, they don't know jack shit about science because there ain't nothing out there showing if you take some chemicals, then you're going to have that grade A mommy daddy milk, non-binary milk, the same way that someone who is biologically designed to provide milk can. To get into this a little bit deeper, um, Domperidone, Sounds almost like a fancy champagne. I know. Is, I want to take some right now. Fuck it. <laughs> like Dom Perrier. <laughs> yo, get me the bottle of that. Hey, you got Dom that Perrier. Dom Perrier? <laughs> Dom hey, Perrier. yo. Hold up, hold up, hold up. You're telling me the thing that people are taking to chest feed newborns is banned? By the FDA in the U.S. By the what? Welcome back to the Hit and Licks show. Once again, we're back at it with the masks and the shysties because we're small and trying to protect our identities and livelihoods because we have professional jobs that we don't want to lose but we also think that there are conversations that are important to have and that aren't always had as honestly as they should be so we've got these on uh dr phd is there anything you would like to add welcome back i hope y'all been enjoying some of the content we put out um, trying to really dive into some topics that are current that need to be discussed more often. People are scared to because there's a lot of judgments on the left side, on the right side. So hopefully y'all can come watch the show. Here's some stuff about what's going on in the world. You might like it. You might not like it. When you don't like it, we're going to invite you to, to see what's going on with yourself. Why, why are you reacting to it? If you do like it, also invite to challenge yourself. Why are you confirming? Why are you only looking for things that are in agreement with what you already believe? So hopefully by the end of the show, you'll have ideas in terms of for, against, anywhere in between. But more than anything, yeah, we hint licks. We get right into it. So today's topic is transgender. And everything going on in the transgender world. Now, before we get into it, I do want you to do something with the like button. Do you want to tell everyone what they should do with the like you button? You need to identify the like button and then smash the guts out of that like button. Share with your friends, comment, all that good fun stuff. Subscribes and shares, I think, are going to help us hack the algorithm more than anything else. So shares especially are greatly appreciated. With that being uh, said and out of the way, today's topic, transgender. There's a new question floating around in the world in the present day that hasn't been asked in a long time in this particular way. What is a woman? I think Matt Walsh with his um, documentary that he recently put out, I think has made this question more popular in recent times than it's ever been. Because I think up until now, there was always a more clear cut answer. I've heard different answers given for this question that on the surface seems to be pretty straightforward. And I actually think that it is still straightforward, but I think some people have muddied the waters with their answers. And, uh, 
Dr. PhD, we were talking recently about the difference between what a man is, what a woman is, what it means to be non-binary, what it means to be gender fluid, how that's different from our biological sex, how our psychological gender differs from our biological sex. And you laid out all of that in a way that was very clean and concise in a way that I haven't really heard anyone articulate before. So if you could kind of get into that transgender or rather the gender quadrant, as I like to call it, uh, I think that'd be a great place to start. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for that intro. And I want to qualify the statements here as being based on my reading of the scientific literature and my watching of different resources on the topic. I really am trying to look at different sides of the coin and inspect the coin and understand the coin. Because once you understand the coin is when you can do stuff with it, right? So right off the bat, um, that question, what is a woman? It seems really muddy nowadays. You get asked that question and it's a potential minefield. You don't know where you're going to step, but you might blow up. You you might get blown to bits. And you don't want to blow up, so it's better to stay quiet. Mm-hmm. But your eyes don't deceive you. People with vision can see physical characteristics. And for a long time, that's what we've considered a woman is based off of physical characteristics. What we've construed as a man is based off of physical characteristics, So there's one question, what is a woman? And then there's another question, what is a female? And that segues into a sort of three construct model of, let's say, biological sex, psychological gender, and sexual orientation. So these are three different facets of a person that co-occur in ways that we consider normative or highly prevalent. And then sometimes combined in ways that are low prevalence or what people would consider abnormal. And the abnormal is in quotations because I I think it's more important to think about this from a prevalence standpoint in a population, not whether someone's normal or not normal, because there's value judgments behind that. Prevalence is speaking about a statistical property in a population. So it's just a numbers thing. So if your feelings get hurt about numbers, I'm sorry. You need to work on yourself. So check it. Biological sex is a function of your chromosomes, the DNA in your cells. Along with that are physical characteristics, primary and secondary sexual characteristics that happen through adolescent development, right? You got a dick, you got a vagina, you got titties, all that good, great stuff. So from a biological sex standpoint, we know there's female, we know there's male, and we know there's intersex. And some other configurations that occur at very, very low prevalence rates. But for the sake of this, we're going to say intersex, male, and female. So that is referring to someone's biology, someone's sex. Now, in contrast, Psychological gender is not biological, right? It's a psychological identity. It's an internal representation 
of what one considers themselves in the context of society and in their own body. So from the standpoint of psychological gender, there's man, woman, neither, both. Neither, meaning non-binary folk, and both, meaning gender-fluid individuals. So all this nonsense about there being thousands of genders is exactly that. It's baloney. I don't know what to tell you. Really, the only way it makes sense to me and to a lot of people I've talked about this in depth with is that there are four configurations. The man, the woman, the both, the neither. Historically, from an evolutionary biological standpoint, sex and gender co-occur at highly prevalent rates. If you're a female, you then identify as a woman. If you're a male, you then identify as a man. So these are the patterns that we're used to seeing over long periods of time. And we're able to see physical characteristics and make assumptions about what their internal identity is going to be. Nowadays, that's gotten real tricky. It's gotten real tricky. You're not even allowed to assume off physical characteristics what their internal representation could be. That's another mind that many people have stepped on and have bl- gotten blown to bits uh, stepping on the wrong mind with that one, for sure. Which is wild because... I think you can assume what someone's gender is going to be. And if they correct you, just switch it up. It ain't that big a deal. Yeah, I, I think that the the transgression should come from not miss, not not just guessing wrong, essentially, but from deliberately choosing to refer to someone by the gender that they do not identify as that, that to me is, can be at that point, it can be antagonistic. But if you see someone that based on their physical characteristics looks like a woman and you assume that they're a woman and then they tell you that they're not, I don't think that up until that point, that person has done anything wrong. But the fact that we will immediately shift into harsh moral judgments against that person, that to me is just too far. I don't think that that makes sense. If that person goes, oh, my bad, uh, you know, I'll refer to you as sir. And, you know, we can go about our day and I feel like that should be commonplace, but it's not. Yeah. Common courtesy respect thing. If someone says, hey, can you refer to me by this name? All right, fine. It won't bother me none. I can move on with my life. Um, uh, going back to this idea, there's biological sex, there's psychological gender, and then there's sexual orientation. So from an evolutionary standpoint, again, males become men, are attracted to female women, then vice versa, there are females who become women that are attracted to male men, not to be confused with your stepdad. So... Those are all three different things that tend to occur with that configuration that we understand. There's a high prevalence of that, but it doesn't always have to be that way. 
And we're seeing a lot more of that now, either because there's greater acceptance of it in Western society or because the actual prevalence rates of these individuals is going up. It's hard to say at this point, which is which, right? Are more people willing to identify that way because society is more open to it? Or have there been a highly prevalent amount of people who identify this way, but withheld that because society did not allow them to to re- reflect back those types of characteristics? Yeah, yeah. That, I think that's kind of the million or trillion dollar question, I guess. That's... That's a big money question. Uh, have these prevalence rates been consistent throughout history or in recent times, have they been increasing? Um, but I don't think that that's a question that we can necessarily know right now. We would definitely need more research. Facts. Um, but I do want to continue along uh the lines you were talking about with these different constructs, um, I, th- I think we've kind of laid enough groundwork now for answering the question, what is a woman? Yeah. Yeah. Someone who primarily identifies with women characteristics. Yes. With, with feminine, with feminine qualities char- yes. to be more specific. Someone who identifies as a man, right? Someone says, I'm a man. What does that mean? They identify primarily with masculine characteristics. So you can think as femininity and masculinity as two different spectrum. They're not one spectrum with opposite sides where you go female or you go feminine to masculine, but rather you have two and you're either more or less masculine, more or less feminine. And when you think about it that way, I think it starts to become a lot clearer because femininity and masculinity have both internal psychological aspects to it, as well as external biological components. And so femininity and masculinity are able to capture the holistic sense of what is captured in in biological sex and psychological gender, meaning it's uh, both a cultural experience, it's culturally shaped, and it's also a biological experience and biologically driven. Um, so think about that in sort of a, a nutshell. There's three constructs. There's sexual orientation. There's biological sex. There's psychological gender. People who are identifying as primarily a, a woman or a man are more aligning themselves with either feminine, masculine characteristics, and then non-binary and gender-fluid folks are identifying with neither or both of those attributes at any given moment in time. Right. And I I like the delineation um, of the feminine and masculine spectrums uh, because I think everyone has, uh, we both possess some degree of feminine characteristics and some degree of masculine characteristics it's the whole yin yang thing there there are certain things that are associated with being more feminine and obviously this is in part culturally informed uh in the west at least being more emotional or being soft is definitely seen as being a more feminine characteristic uh, 
even being nurturing is seen as more of a motherly or feminine trait versus being uh, more logical uh, or rational or being more stern and and just being you know, maybe harder on yourself or on people is typically seen as being more masculine or being more direct is maybe a better way to uh, kind of capture all of those things. And and I think we've all met someone that exhibits, you know, a various mix of masculine and feminine uh, characteristics or traits and behaviors. Um, and just because you possess some feminine characteristics doesn't mean that you're going to identify as a woman or that you are a woman. I think we've all met, uh, you know, a man that we thought maybe acted a little more girly uh, or was just like really soft and more nurturing towards other people. Uh, and that that guy, you know, very well may still have a heterosexual orientation and uh, may very may may still be interested in women and then vice versa we've all you know met a woman that maybe exhibited more masculine characteristics we used to call those women uh, or girls tomboys uh but i've met many tomboys that are very much into guys it doesn't mean that they don't identify as a woman so i, I think for me that's a easier way to understand sort of this identification and, and an easier that that provides essentially like a compass for answering the question what is a man what is a woman and that to me is the most consistent is what is a woman someone that identifies primarily with female characteristics everyone that i've heard answer that question whether they gave a muddy answer or a clear answer although i haven't heard many clear answers i think that's really what they were trying to say is that i or this person in question just identifies primarily with feminine characteristics to the point that they feel more like a woman in their body. Yeah. Yeah. The, the uh, mix of feminine and masculine qualities can be within a person, even if we consider them to, to be in that high prevalent configuration, right? Mm -hmm. A typical hyper-masculine man can be wearing dresses and playing with makeup because they have a little, a little girl. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that person now woman? Well, no, they don't identify as a woman mm -hmm. in this case, let's say, uh, but they're still ex expressing some type of characteristic that we've historically considered feminine. And that idea, too, of historically, I know it's going to trigger some of you people um, whenever we refer to evolution and biology, uh, because, you know, science, bad science, can't trust it. <laughs> The reason we bring that up is for historical context. When you don't know the past, you're doomed to repeat the future. So you need to understand how things have worked. And things have and these aspects of human functioning have presumably based off of our best scientific practices been around for hundreds of thousands of years. And so that's not to say just because for hundreds of thousands of years females have been nurturing and giving cooking etc doesn't mean that they are destined to be that way or they have to adhere 
to those types of qualities. So we're not we're not saying that because it's been that way, it needs to continue being that way. We're just really trying to lay out the background context for the conversation. Because we do think, at least I'll speak for myself, I think just because historically or evolutionary, you're born into a body that's inclined to certain internal representations or certain attributes doesn't mean that you have to adhere to that. You can be who you want to be. You can express feminine and masculine quantities, qualities, um, and you should still be respected as a human being. And that's, that's my hot take. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Regardless of how you identify, I believe that respect should be a given and that we should start with, we should meet each other with a baseline level of respect and we should adjust that based upon that person's behavior, how they treat us and how they treat other people. And I don't think that just because they identify one way or another, we should automatically treat them with a different level of respect, nor should we bestow upon them some sort of moral judgment one way or the other. We should not see them automatically as more virtuous than anyone else. We also shouldn't you know, morally judge them as being less than other people. Uh, it's it's important to respect each other. And I, I think most people that are transgender just want that. They want to live their lives as, you know, normally as they can. They, they just want to be a transgender person. And I think most of them just, you know, want to be able to use the bathroom without being harassed and go about their lives just as much as anyone else that is uh, has a sexual and psychological orientation that's of higher prevalence. Um, now, going back to the historical context, I think that's important to keep in mind too because I think that historical context of how we have viewed psychological gender and biological sex I think that has uh, that can kind of explain a lot of the controversy surrounding gender affirming care, um, and, and I think that, that we can kind of pivot into gender affirming care now. What that currently looks like, what the research has to say about it, and current recommendations that are being given by society and the media. Um, so I guess to establish the baseline. What is gender-affirming care? What what does that even mean? Because I've heard that as a blanket term, but I've heard it used in a way that's not always very descriptive. It's it's doesn't always tell you exactly what that means. Does that mean that this person is going to therapy and they're being supported in figuring out their gender identity? I think a lot of times it's actually been used just to refer to hormone therapy. So What's gender-affirming care? What's it consist of in its entirety? Yeah. Um, so big picture, gender-affirming care is a psychological and physiological intervention set used to modify external characteristics and make them more closely aligned with one's internal representation of who they are. So someone is born a male, and then at some point they start to consider themselves a girl and or a woman, 
gender affirming care would be the psychological and medical services they received that would more closely align that external representation with the internal components. There's a psychological and then there's the physical or the medical. A lot of the attention goes on the physiological or the medical interventions because people are taking hormones, they're disrupting their neuroendocrine processes. And at the same time, some individuals are also modifying their physical characteristics through surgical procedures. Whenever in medicine, in in psychological or physical medicine, you are evaluating the effects of an intervention, what's done is a randomized clinical trial. An RCT. An RCT. So you have different groups, you assign them to the intervention that you're particularly interested in, and then you either assign them to a wait list, meaning they're just waiting around, they're not getting anything in particular, or you give them the gold standard treatment, something that has already been studied and has been shown to be beneficial with low risk. I think it's really important to know that when people are talking about gender-affirming interventions, they're not referring to randomized clinical trials. They're not basing their inferences of science off of the gold standard for intervention research, which is these RCTs. It's the primary way by which scientists are able to say, when you manipulate this thing, this thing happens later on. It is the closest thing that science has to making causal statements about how things work in the world. So when people say, for example, gender-affirming care prevents suicides, I'll say, okay, there's anecdotal evidence that it does. People are saying that it's doing that, but you've not seen one RCT showing that it actually prevents suicide relative to a control group. So you can't make a causal statement. And I think that there's a lot of uh, myth around this at this point. I'm not saying it, it could have a lot of benefit or it is having a causal impact. All I'm saying is the research is not there to make that claim. And that is very, very obvious from my perspective. We don't have research that supports making super definitive statements that we see being made in the media. And... I don't know. I haven't read as many journals, so I I don't know if in the journals people are making these definitive statements recommending these interventions. Um, But I I do think that that's a really important thing to point out is uh, we we don't have the data yet to make these causal definitive statements. And for the record, how many RCTs do we have on gender-affirming care? I've not seen one published paper on on an RCT. So to your knowledge, to the knowledge of a 
PhD. We don't have any RCTs. That's not to say that they don't exist, just that you don't know of them or have not heard of them. I'm under the impression that there might be some in the pipeline, Mm -hmm. but there are no published results. Gotcha. That I've seen thus far. Okay. Now, I'll throw y'all a bone. Some people out there might say, well, can you do an RCT with something like this? Because the control group should be getting the intervention that's going to have a benefit. We we have a ethics and a, a ethical duty to help people who are suffering and in pain. And I would argue back, yeah, when there's a gold standard of treatment, and we have not definitively found out whether this is it or not. So we cannot make a definitive claim about this is causing benefits and it has no risk. The work out there that has been done on this intervention is usually with one group and it's pre-post. So the science out there can make claims about it improves this outcome, well-being, life satisfaction, it reduces suicidal ideation in that one group. But again, they're not comparing it to a control group that has not received that intervention. And so you can't say it's the intervention in and of itself that's generated that benefit. Now, I'll also say that there are a lot of case studies. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence suggesting that gender-affirming care through physiological means does produce a benefit for individuals, does reduce suicide, ideation rates, all that stuff, which is great because these are people suffering, they're in pain. I mean, can you imagine being born in one body and the whole life you're thinking you're actually born in the wrong body? I think that would be a pretty, pretty tough life. Yeah, that, I mean, that sounds like some sort of Greek tragedy. It sounds like there's like some Greek myth written about someone that was punished by the gods and was put into the wrong body and forced to live that way for the rest of their days. That does not sound pleasant. I think that these people deserve, I think these people, trans people, deserve a certain amount of compassion in that respect because I do think that's a hard life. And that's, for the most part, going to be, I think most trans people are probably going to feel like they identify with the opposite gender from essentially birth, from their earliest memories, and they're going to grow up that way for the most part. So I I think it's important to keep that in mind. I think it's important to extend that compassion to them, just based on that alone, that these are people that are not having a good time. They're not having a good time in the body that they were born in. And society is not not making that any easier for them either. Um, and so I, I think that given that we can briefly touch on gender-affirming care in children, because specifically hormone therapy, I think the idea of gender-affirming care for a young child where you're offering psychological benefits and psychological support. Maybe they're going to therapy. They're being asked 
deeper questions about their gender identity, why they identify that way. I think that that's healthy. And I've heard, not often, but I've heard it before, that that suggestion in and of itself is... um, could be like tantamount to child abuse or something that you're somehow harming the child by providing psychological benefits first before immediately employing hormone therapy. And as we just stated, we don't have the data to definitively state that hormonal interventions or in every instance are going to provide causal positive benefits, causal positive outcomes. And if you could just speak a little bit more on the research in regards to hormone therapy administered to children. Yeah, yeah. So you're kind of hitting on this idea of the gold standard of care. In health interventions, we aim to establish the gold standard of care, the thing that causes the most benefit with the least risk for someone who is already dealing with a disease process or is going to likely in the future. Again, we don't know this is the gold standard mm-hmm. because we haven't done any RCTs. So there's this misunderstanding that it is in fact a gold standard when it's not. Mm-hmm. And because of that, There is this push for when people enter psychological or medical services and have gender dysphoria, gender distress. When they have the gender distress, the go-to is this thing that we think is the gold standard. And so rather than focusing on the psychological processes underpinning the gender distress, we go to, oh, let's just give you these hormones and maybe do some surgical procedures to give you more immediate alleviation of your distress. Again, because people have the misunderstanding that this is the gold standard of care. It's not. We don't know that yet because there are no RCTs. So there's this big jump, right? Gender distress equals we're going to give you these interventions. And I think people are doing it with good intentions. They're Mm -hmm. wanting to reduce that suffering and the pain that a patient is going through. But short-term alleviation does not equate to long-term alleviation. And I think we need to be very mindful of that differentiation. So, Speaking to this idea of of children, I want to first start with adults. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are an adult and you have thought about this, you've experienced distress related to your gender and your sex, and you've decided this is the way you want to go forward, you should have every right to do that. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. If these are the lengths you're willing to go because you want to reduce your suffering, you should be allowed to make that decision. The government should stay out of whether you can or cannot Mm -hmm. because you're an adult and you've already gone through puberty. Mm -hmm. 
This is a big deal. You've already gone through puberty. Because that's my biggest concern when it comes to children and recommending hormone or surgical procedures. Mine too. Is that, again, we have no RCT, so we don't know if it's actually creating these benefits. And we don't know about the risks. And two, that's just from an immediate sense. We have no understanding of how changing your hormones during puberty changes you later on. That, yes, that's, to echo your point, is my biggest concern as well. What I've heard repeated many, this is one thing I have heard repeated many times, is that hormone therapy for children and in adolescence, puberty blockers specifically, they put a pause button on puberty. And if at any point in time, the child in question, the adolescent in question changes their mind, they can go off the puberty blockers and we hit play again. And puberty just resumes as it would have from the beginning if if we didn't employ this intervention. Cap, 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 cap. I know of zero biological processes that you can hit a pause button on And by the way, the pause button here means you're injecting other hormones into your body that you can then just remove from that environment, meaning your body, and then everything just goes on as it would have if you didn't introduce those hormones at that time. I know of no bio—this is not a YouTube video where you hit play and you buffer on through and then you resume later on and it's the same video that was playing before. This this is not this is not your fucking video player. This is your body. You're always changing. And there might not be any other time in your life other than puberty, perhaps after you're born and there's a lot of neurological decay in the brain. Maybe maybe that's the time, those two points in time in the human lifespan are the times where we undergo the most change. But to say that we can introduce puberty blockers if the child changes their mind, by the way, we're acknowledging that you may decide, you may identify as the same gender later on, that this is not set in stone. We're, we're we're saying that you can just pause that. You you cannot pause that. Your body is going to be different. Your body is different every day that you wake up, even as an adult. But it's really different day to day when you're an adolescent and you're going through puberty. And the idea that we are saying that there are zero side effects to introducing puberty blockers and then coming off of them is ridiculous. There's no data to support that. It it boggles my mind how people can even get away with saying that. That is major cap. That's one of the biggest caps I've heard um, from people arguing in favor of puberty blockers and gender-affirming care as it pertains to hormonal interventions. Naive at best, dumbass at worst. Yes, uh, I, I will. <laughs> I will give the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I think most people are coming from a place of love. They're coming from a place of compassion. They want to be nurturing. They are sympathetic and empathetic to the idea that these people are suffering, and they want to alleviate that suffering. But that should not come at the cost of cap. 
like this, which could be harmful to someone that says, I want to go on puberty blockers and then later says, I want to come off of them. There can be actual harm that is done there that might not be reversible. And I've heard it say that it's completely reversible. I'm going to call cap on that. I think that you're going to even if there's some recovery to baseline or where you would be at that stage in your development, I don't think you're going to get a hundred percent reversion. You're going to incur some sort of lasting changes. And we, we don't have enough data. We need to do more studies. We should do more studies we should. to investigate what actually happens when you introduce puberty blockers one, and then what happens when you introduce them and then you take them away. We don't have the data to defi- make definitive statements that you can just pause puberty and then resume, which you you cannot. I, I will say that you that's just not true, and that's where the danger is. I th- that's the biggest danger that I see. Com- completely false and anti scientific statement. But also, right there's intent and there's impact, and mm-hmm. we should be mindful of both. Uh, you think about. That type of comment, oh, you can hit the pause button on puberty. It's not just physical changes that are going on here. There are also brain changes that are happening during puberty related to how one is going to control their emotions and their decision-making for the rest of their life. So again, it's not just physical characteristics that you're modifying. You're modifying brains. And think about it, if you're already taking youth who struggle with negative emotions, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, and then you undermine their capacity to develop a brain that controls their emotions and makes healthy decisions, you're setting them up for a very, very difficult life. And they were already having a difficult life. You just made it worse thinking you're making it better. Now, again, there's anecdotal evidence suggesting that it could be beneficial, but it is not the gold standard of care. There are no RCTs. We don't know that definitively. We need to find out what are the benefits, what are the risks, what are the safety concerns, and for whom are these interventions effective for, and for whom are they actually even more consequential and harmful for. So that kind of bridges to the next topic in the sense that When there are people who have gender distress who initiate procedures to become trans, there are likely subgroups. I I know I'm going to get canceled. I can can hear the footsteps behind me about to cancel me with the pitchforks. So you could think about it two ways, right? There's persistent gender distress. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a a little female that's born, starts walking, starts talking, and the whole time as a parent, as a caregiver, you can see this little girl identifies more as a little boy. Maybe instead of dolls, they play with Legos and pickup trucks and want to hang out with dad all the time, go outdoors, go hunt. That's kind of extreme, right? I'm just trying to paint a picture here. 
this idea that from the moment a child is walking and talking, you can see their outside characteristics don't match with what you would expect from their internal representation. Meaning if they're female, they're not exactly a little girl. Or if they're a male, they're not exactly a boy. So it's different when you can see that from them being infants and toddlers into their young teens. That to me is likely a subgroup of individuals who are trans, where it's very persistent and it endures across time and across different social situations. When it comes to individuals who have an enduring form of gender distress, I imagine that surgical and hormone procedures could actually be very beneficial for this group of individuals. If you're having these types of experiences your whole life, these modifications that align your external with your internal could produce improved health, improved well-being outcomes, and also keep you from acting on suicidal thoughts. And that's a big deal. We should be doing that for people who are undergoing this type of adversity since they're young, because it's the right thing to do. That is a big deal. And I think you're right. I think that demographic is most likely to experience the greatest amount of positive outcomes from those interventions that will also persist longitudinally across time. They're most likely, I would guess, post-intervention to be very happy with the outcome and then also to be very happy with the outcome many years into the future, which is a big fucking deal. Because I think it's one thing to be very happy with the outcome immediately after. You just got this thing done. You're excited about it. It's very different to regret that five to ten years later. This is way more permanent than a tattoo. Way more permanent. Just think about that. Way more altering to your body than a tattoo. This is not just an aesthetic change. How the, old do you need to be to get a tattoo? 18 at least. Inter- Wild. Interesting. That, that we... And and you need to be 18 to get a tattoo no matter what the size is. Mm. So you could get something that's, you know, the size of a quarter on your arm not a whole lot of change to your body, still permanent, still long lasting, but you need to be 18 or have parents consent. And the idea that you could be a young child and want to get gender affirming care and that in some states you don't even need your parents consent. I think that that's a glaring discrepancy in terms of <laughs> standards that we uh, apply to and freedom given, um, it it really speaks to the fact that we understand that children are children when it comes to tattoos and that their wants and desires change over time. And I think it's virtue signaling more than anything else. And also not just virtue signaling, but I do think the desire to be compassionate is what's driving people to insist that even children should be allowed to have these hormonal interventions um, and to opt into them. But I think it's important to remember that these are just children and that their wants and desires can change over time, how they view themselves, how they identify. 
with themselves can change over time. And we need to be cautious when allowing them to make permanent lasting changes that are going to alter their body on a hormonal and cellular level. This will change their brain. There's nothing that will change you more than changing your brain. This is not just getting a new forearm tattoo. Only your forearm changes. You still have the same brain. When you undergo these hormonal interventions, especially in puberty, you will change your personality, Who the fabric of who you are will change. And for the demographic that we pointed out, those that have persisting gender distress from a young age, I think it's very likely that they're going to exhibit, they're, they're going to be very happy with the outcomes. They're going to, that they're going to live a better life. And I think ultimately everyone really deep down inside, I think everyone wants everyone else to live a good life, to live a better life. Um, but that's just one demographic that we have. The one demographic being those that exhibit persisting gender distress. I think you were getting ready to outline another demographic. Yeah. And, and I'll add to what you're saying there that during puberty, all these brain regions involved in how you feel, how you think, and how you behave are changing. And you throw the, these other interventions in there, we have no real idea how it is then affecting the the way you would have normatively changed in terms of how you feel and think and act. So the other group, right? There's the ones that are persistent and it's enduring. The other group is um, rapid onset. And quite a few researchers actually, heavily cited ones, people with over 10,000 citations, which is Pretty good scientist if you have over 10,000 citations, have been canceled. That's like a New York Times bestseller equivalent of being a scientific publisher. Yeah, if you got 10,000 citations as a scientist, you you made it to the, to the major leagues. You're definitely in the major leagues. You're all-star. You're, you're killing the game. You're on top of your game. But even scientists with that pedigree will say things that get them canceled because ideology and assumptions about how the world works are more important than actually carrying out science. And asking these groups of people themselves what's going on. And the reason I bring that up is because one prominent scientist was canceled for bringing up this idea of rapid onset. Mm. gender dysphoria because some people will say well, now you're creating this differentiation between subgroups of trans people and some people will get more understanding for the position that they're in versus others and i think when you make claims about how science might impact narratives you're no longer doing science you're storytelling and so don't tell scientists what to do if you're a storyteller. Stay in your lane. Scientists will stay in their lane. The, I want to jump on that real quick because that speaks to a big problem that I see us having in society right now is we are trying to get our ideologies to inform science. We are trying to get narrative to inform data. That is not how 
this world should work. We will live in a better world when we use the data to inform our narratives. So when we learn something new that goes against our narrative or that goes against our ideology, we need to update that narrative. We need to update that ideology. We must be malleable to change. We do not know everything that there is to know. We make new discoveries all the time. We should not be so dead set on one ideology or one narrative that we're not open to changing our mind when there is good data that is telling us to do otherwise. Yeah. Confir- confirmation bias is a f- is a fucker. It's a fucking powerful thing and our brain's geared to our our brain is geared to look for confirmation bias unfortunately a, a very unfortunate part of the human condition. Um it, I'm not saying that it's an easy thing to do but I think we stand to live in a better world if we can overcome our own humanity and do that. And for those of you who haven't encountered that construct, confirmation bias is the human's tendency to look for information that confirms what they already believe. We all do this. We all suffer from it. The point is to be aware and to not let it sway your thinking and your decision making. So kind of switching back to to the gears here, there's evidence for a subgroup of individuals who have rapid onset gender distress. And it's taboo to say that there might be some people who have had this since they were born and other people are having it start up in the last few weeks, last few months. These are different subgroups. These are different people. You have to keep that in mind. These are likely different people and any medicine that's been evaluated with modern science shows that there are subgroups who benefit more and subgroups who are more at risk. And not just medicine, but interventions of any kind, whether they be psychological or medical or pharmaceutical, etc. Yep. All tend to find subgroups that have differential responsiveness to it. So when you think of people who have a more rapid onset what would be the reasons they would? Maybe they want to fit in with their peers better. Maybe they're looking for ways to build their self-esteem and their self-confidence. Maybe they're trying to make more friends. It all comes back down to this idea that we all, especially teens, want to feel like we belong and we have friends and we're contributing to something. Being a part of a new community fills those needs in a very strong, pointed way. And to add to uh, the contributing factors that might contribute to rapid onset of gender distress, I think it could also be a way of dealing with trauma. It might be a coping mechanism. And I think that that could mean that Maybe you could make the argument that someone's gender distress would be resolved if they resolved that trauma. For some people, it might not. They still may be a transgender individual. Uh, I'm not saying that it's all made up in their head, but I'm saying that it could be the brain's way of dealing with psychological trauma. 
I mean, what better way to distance yourself from trauma that you've endured than becoming another person? You take on a dead name, you get a new body if you undergo hormonal therapeutic interventions. Um, and you leave, leave, drop the dead name. Yeah. And you add the new name. Exactly. Exactly. Like you're not even the same person anymore. So I could see how on a psychological level that could be so transformative that it actually helps you relieve some of your trauma. I'm not making a moral judgment about that. There's no moral judgment associated with that. I encourage that anyone listening to that shouldn't associate any moral judgment with that either. But I, that's a hypothesis that I have. It's not based on any research. I think that's a question that could be worth evaluating because if that is true, then we could tailor our interventions to better help those people figuring out their gender identity and resolving their trauma in addition to all those other factors um, that you laid out just now. Yeah, I mean, the the trauma question is, uh, I think, a very valid scientific question, especially when you consider the prevalence rates of adverse childhood experiences. So people in the trans community, people that are gay, people that are lesbian, people that are bi, there is a higher prevalence of trauma that these individuals have experienced. And so it's a scientific question. To what extent have those adversities shaped some of the experiences related to biological sex, psychological gender, sexual orientation. Now, people in science are very sensitive to asking that question, very averse to exploring that question, but it is a scientific question at its core, right? Um, For whom is this experience more biological, and for whom is this experience more cultural or experiential mm-hmm. um, and, not cultural but experiential I think is a more appropriate term there and I, and I would argue that whether this falls into either of those categories it does not necessarily invalidate anyone's experience it doesn't mean we don't mean to say that you're not transgender because you fall into either category or that you are transgender because you fall into either category it's it's this is not a an invalidating statement, just that yeah, heavy emphasis on the um, you're not making it up in your mind yes. if you're experiencing this. We're in no way, shape, or form saying that this is a made up thing. What we're saying is that there could be different origins for why people experience this type of distress. And if you can identify the origins, then you can identify different subgroups who are more or less likely to find benefits and tolerate risks associated with chopping your dick off. That's a fucking lick right there if I ever heard one. Just saying. Facts. Um, so we've covered a lot of ground here. Is there anything else you want to cover before we go into the final segment for today? I say let's jump into it. All right, cool. Let's see what the CDC is uh, dishing out. Yeah, I and I think that's a good way to summarize everything up until this point is that no one's experience should be invalidated. Um, that being said, people in the media 
and activists more i've heard more activists and people in the media that are not transgender say wacky things about transgender and doesn't it always seem to be that way it's always fucking that way it's not the transgenders that are really fucking this up for the transgenders it's all the activists and the people pushing ideology on everyone fucking else i think the transgender people are oftentimes probably just as pissed off as everyone else it's like can you let us live and stop putting us in the news you're making this shit harder yeah i i think that most transgender people would love to not be in the news that being said the cdc has recently put out a guideline on breastfeeding or even chest feeding for trans women and non-binary individuals and there is a medical protocol called the Newman Goldfarb Protocol, which is a combination of contraceptive hormones, breast pumps, and doperidone that trans women and I suppose non-binary individuals can undergo that will cause them as a male, as a biological male, to produce milk from their from their chest. And I suppose that's why they call it chest feeding. Um, although some of them probably got the boobies. Uh, <laughs> but the, this protocol is now, <laughs> who is this for? Who, who's, who's, and also there's so much to cover here. I'm throwing everything. I'm throwing the entire kitchen sink at this thing all at once. <laughs> but who's this protocol for? Is this for infants that are going to be breastfed by transgender parents? Or is this for transgender parents? Like, who is this for? Yeah. And I imagine that a high proportion of people in the trans community who have children understand they do not have the biological components that allow them to breastfeed in a way that facilitates healthy development for an infant. And if they think they do, they don't know jack shit about science because there ain't nothing out there showing if you take some chemicals, then you're going to have that grade A mommy daddy milk, non-binary milk, the same way that someone who is biologically designed to provide milk can. Agreed. Agreed. And to get into this a little bit deeper, um, Domperidone sounds almost like a fancy champagne. I know. Is, I want to take some right now. Fuck it. <laughs> like Dom Perrier. <laughs> yo, get me the bottle of that. Hey, you got Dom that Dom Perrier? <laughs> Dom hey, <Perrier>. yo. <laughs> Domperidone is banned in the U.S. and it's not approved for children under 12. Hold up, hold up, hold up. You're telling me the thing that people are taking to chest feed newborns is banned? By the FDA in the U.S. By the what? By the FDA and the CDC is coming out saying that, hey, men or rather not men, but trans women can chest feed. And one protocol that will allow you wow. to do this is the Newman Goldfarb protocol. One thing that will allow you to do this is Domperidone. And in the UK, you need a prescription to get it, and you can't even uh, administer it to children under 12. And it's 
banned in the U.S. for cardiac risk. And there have been some doctors that have come out against this, saying that these medications, such as domperidone and others, uh, pose potential cardiac risk in infants. They need to get canceled, those doctors. How, da- how dare they how prevent dare they? these little infants from being healthy? And from bonding with their trans women mothers. How dare they? They need to get canceled. The but Sla- I, slash s clear sarcasm because that is cap major cap so much cap it's all cap the the and again i we were talking about this before we started recording that is so self-centered to me that you Because I would be willing to bet that none of these medications that are going to allow a biological male to chest feed their infant child, because those are the only people in the world that chest feed or breastfeed are infants. I'm willing to bet that there's no RCT, there's no study done studying the safety of having these chemicals processed by, you know, the trans woman's body, the biological male's body. And coming out the chest, coming out the titty into that infant's mouth, there's no study that has been done to see how safe or how risky that is, what the potential adverse and side effects are. And in contrast, you look at how much research has been done on female women breastfeeding and how careful they have to be about excluding certain foods, staying entirely away from them during pregnancy because it poses such a risk to the healthy development of a fetus and then an infant after they're born. It seems mind-blowing to contrast the fact that so much work has been done on how careful you need to be to maintain healthy breast milk. And on this other side, you got, oh, let's just throw a little little chemical here, a little Dom Perignon there, everything good. Let's go, baby, health. It just boggles my mind. I do not understand it. Like, if you are a female woman, you're breastfeeding your child, you got to be careful about how much tuna and salmon and fish that you eat because there's heavy metals in that fish that will make its way into your breast milk that will make it its way into your baby and can have severe adverse effects. And so now we're just like, oh yeah, you're a biological male. You want, you don't produce breast milk or chest milk, but you want some in there. We've got a chemical cocktail that's going to get it right where it needs to be. But we also need to use a breast pump because you don't have the biology or the physics for that. So we need to give it a little extra. Who's that for? Yes. Ask yourself, is that for the infant? Is that for, is that because that's the healthiest way to nurture a baby? You're, you're telling me that Formula One just ain't enough. You can't just use Even the formula stuff. Do you, do you remember when they were having that whole back and forth oh, about the formula? Yeah. <laughs> some places still don't think it's a good way to nurture your child. Yeah. But if you take some chemical, that Don Perignon. Mm, got that good milk that great day oh my god yeah we're just churning out milk queens now you got you got uh years of potential puberty blockers Mm -hmm. and then you add this cocktail on top of it 
we have absolutely no idea what it's going to do to the individual taking these compounds, let alone a baby that is ingesting the artificial manufactured chest milk. And even if we took the Don Domperidone out of the equation, we've still got contraceptive hormones being introduced to a biological male's organism, pushing the production of breast milk, chest milk, whatever you want to call it. I would be very, I, I would be very skeptical of that. Like I would not want any baby of mine, let alone any baby that I know or care about, to be ingesting anyone's breast milk if they've got contraceptive hormones in their body because i'm not sure what that does maybe it does nothing maybe maybe contraceptive hormones are are just fine but the idea that there's extra hormones floating around that normally aren't there and aren't supposed to be there and, and the baby ingesting milk from someone undergoing that intervention just seems like a really fucking bad idea if they if they made a commercial for this you know, at, you know, at the end of the, the medication commercials, they got this long, long, long list of all the side effects. How long do you think that shit would be? It would be 10 minutes long, right at a normal speed, and they would have to speed it up even faster than usual to get through all of the adverse side effects. The entire commercial wouldn't would be so long that they wouldn't even be able to air it normally. It'd be like one of those... 10 minute ads that you see on YouTube where you just can't wait until the five second timer counts down so you can hit skip ad. And it would just all, it would be B roll of just the, the, the transparent chest feeding. Oh, that family would be super happy. Oh, they'd be so happy. happy. But in the background, it would just be potential side effects include and death and death. Yeah. Right at the end, right at the end. (laughs) Yeah. That's we can risk it. Let's risk it. We can risk it. But to we get can, can risk but it. to get the milk in those titties and into the mouth, we can risk it. Bruh, the only argument that I could possibly see as this being relevant to the development of a baby is that sensation of suckling on a breast mm-hmm. could generate a sense of safety and security for the baby. But you ain't even doing that shit because you need a pump. So you get nothing out of it except your own internal need to feel like you're contributing in the way that biological female women can. I mean, what the fuck do people get out of it? And that's not a judgment on trans people. I think most trans people would never consider doing this. These are for a very select, specific subgroup of trans people who care more about their own needs and desires than the healthy development of their child. And also, this is for the goddamn CDC poking its nose where it doesn't fucking belong because center of disease control. Are you saying that this is a disease that we need to control? What are you implying, CDC? This is not your lane. Stay out of it. Stay in your own lane. You, you've got a, this is a big L and you have a losing record for the past three years at least. And then you have an organization that's responsible for making claims about this stuff. The FDA, the and- Food and Drug Administration banning these chemicals, some of them, 
But then the CDC is recommending it. Make it make sense. Make it make sense. You can't. You cannot make it make sense to me. You can't make illogical shit make sense. This, it, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And uh, again, doubling down on this is not in any way, shape, or form an attack on trans people. I would agree. I've heard many actual trans individuals say, yeah, I understand that my biological sex is different from my gender. I understand I've undergone, you know, transition therapy. I've, I've had, you know, top and bottom surgery. I do the whole hormone thing and I feel much better in my body, but I understand. Love that for them. Love it for them. Love that. Love it for them. I've heard Buck Angel, trans man. That man is a dude. That's a man. If I ever seen one say yeah, like I, I was born a woman. Like I could, or at least at one point could have birthed a baby, but you know, like I can't put a baby in someone. That's a trans individual. That is very, that's a very sane person that is very much in line and congruent with reality and biology and physics. And I think most trans people would agree with everything that Buck Angel said. And I, I think most people are going to be like, yeah, this doesn't sound safe for our baby and we want our baby to be safe and have a good life. This is again, the not trans people. This is the CDC. This is the people on the far left, really just trying to push this thing. And at a, for the most part, I would like to assume that people have good intentions that this is done out of like compassion and empathy for people that are struggling and want to live a better life. When you're recommending medications that are maybe experimental <laughs> and recommending that people take these medications so they can breastfeed their kids i start to wonder what's the intention here like oh, do you actually have good intentions why just why or is it all ideological is it all ideological what disease are you controlling cdc the chest milk disease <laughs> the natural breast milk disease. I mean, what what disease are you controlling, CDC? It doesn't make any sense, especially in the context of the FDA banning it, saying yeah. the contrary, mm -hmm. and actually basing that off of scientific literature, presumably, because um, the CDC stopped doing that a long time ago. It is mind-boggling what government agencies are superimposing on the populace in terms of ideological framing and claiming that it's pro-science when in fact it's anti-science. It's cherry-picking science. I like this science. I don't like that science. So we're going to outlaw certain theories and do away with science altogether. Yeah, it's egregious. It's egregious. So with that, we've covered quite a bit about the experience of biological sex, psychological gender, sexual orientation, the differences between high prevalence, low prevalence, individuals who are trans, different subgroups within the trans community that have more persistent, enduring forms of gender distress versus individuals who have more rapid onset, the nature of the evidence in favor of these interventions as the gold standard or complete lack thereof and 
Also, the the need for more research. There really does need to be a lot more research into these areas because they have shown some benefits. They have shown that they can decrease some risks. And so we need more rigorous research on this so we can help the people who really need help and do it in a way that's going to be the best for those individuals across their life. Well said. Well said on everything that we covered today. So I'd say that brings this episode to a close. The like button, the subscribe button. What do we want people to do with that? You need to smash the guts out of that like button. Yes. Likes, subscribes, and shares. Most of all, that as uh, just people trying to get this off the floor. I think is going to help hack the algorithm more than anything else. Uh, So help us beat the algorithm. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We would love to hear your thoughts on everything in the comments. Let us know what you thought, what you agreed with, what you didn't agree with. We would love to hear from you guys. And that was another Hit and Lick show. That's a wrap.